Morning, everybody. Hello. Uh, this week, I took my uh, son, Thomas, up to uh, York. He's received an offer to go to the university there in the autumn, and it's his first choice. And the couple of visits we'd previously made helped, you know, helped him form his view that this was probably the right course for him in the right place for him. Well, our visit on Wednesday seemed a bit of a watershed in a funny sort of way, because going to study for three years at York University is no longer a vague possibility or a concept that is defined or described by glossy brochures, glowing reports, and romantic imagery of the brooding north. It's no longer a concept. It's a real possibility, even likely. And it struck me that when it looks like something is going to happen, whatever it is, especially if it's important, we often become a bit more anxious and look at things more closely, even critically. So on Wednesday, corridors in the university and halls of residence that had previously um, just taken us from A to B or looked like a place that he could sleep are now met with a more critical eye. And they look a bit grey and featureless. And the student that we might actually study with, who we meet uh, on that day, no longer looks quite the same or quite as attractive as the ones in the brochure. Well, if Thomas came away on Wednesday with a slightly more realistic view of things, perhaps, his instinct, thankfully, was still the same. It's the right course in the right place. But the closer it seems that we draw to unfamiliar change, the more, in a sense, we get a bit out of our comfort zone when we think it might be real and about to happen. We ask more detailed questions or come back to what our instincts tell us. An example to me, at least at the moment, is the fascinating debate over Scottish independence. The closer we get to referendum day on September the 18th, the more anxious we seem to become because Scottish independence is no longer just an idea that we can consider from our comfort zone of politics or sociology, but something that might actually happen. So we study its impact on jobs, on Europe, on business, on England and Wales. And things that looked workable start to look a bit difficult. And things that looked wealth-creating have another side to them. And there are so many opinions and so much data, so much of it conflicting, that we can only hope that the instincts that are impressed will be the expressed on September the 18th will be the right ones, whatever they are. Well, Jew, Jesus' Jewish audience in today's passage are getting completely out of their comfort zone with him. So far they've witnessed or heard about healings, evil forces expelled, new disciples following him, and revolutionary words. And they sense something of the prophet in him, the miracle worker, and someone who speaks of God with real authority. And they, as they hear his unsettling agenda, his desire for change, they need to know more, to ask more questions and test their intuition. So they ask him about the kingdom of God and about sin. You see, 
The Jews had always learned and understood that as the chosen nation of God, if they worshipped him, if they made animal sacrifices to appease him, and stuck to the law laid down by Moses and by tradition, then the kingdom was theirs. What Jesus was saying, though, in our passage today, turned all of that on its head. And that's what he does. He turns the traditional understanding of entry to the kingdom of God on its head for the Jewish audience of the day. But in doing so, he leaves us, you and I, with a legacy in Scripture which is no less challenging. So I'm going to tackle it by exploring with you three of the main themes that Jesus mentions in this passage. You'll see them on the batting order today, the sermon outline. First, that all must repent, the theme of repentance. And then what he says about relationship with the Father. And then a theme he introduces at the end, that the kingdom of God is a place of redistribution, where the existing order is to be turned on its head too. So I'll explain those ideas as we go along and hope that triggers thoughts in you about the shape that you're in with God right now. Thoughts that may well challenge you as they've challenged me when I've been putting together this talk. But I hope also things that inspire you to take the next step. So first, the need for repentance. Well, these days when a natural or other disaster occurs such as we have apparently seen this week in the awful Malaysian airline tragedy. It's seldom long before someone asks, why didn't God prevent it? But in Jesus' day, the common Jewish belief was that suffering or disaster was a consequence of sin. In other words, the question would have been not, why didn't God prevent it? It would have been, what did they do wrong? that God was exercising his judgment for sins committed. Now, to many of us, such an assertion is completely out of line with our modern understanding of the world and how God works, but not to them. So they tested Jesus with a couple of examples at the beginning of our passage. Some Galilean Jews whose blood was made impure by being mixed with animal sacrifices under Pilate. And 18 folk killed by a collapsing tower in Siloam. Effectively, what had they done wrong, Jesus? Well, Jesus often turned the theological question into the personal. So he replied, and I paraphrase now, do you honestly think they were any worse than anyone else? No, it's for all to repent or perish. And that means you. That means you. And I think he says pretty much the same today. When we point to the sin or excesses of others in business, politics, groups of which we might disapprove or people who do things that are repugnant to us and we think deserve judgment, then we can always expect the question also to be turned back on us. Unless you repent, you too will perish. The spirit of Jesus always makes our theological musings about other people personal too. 
And of course, that raises difficult questions because repentance in any of our lives is difficult because we're asked to go outside our comfort zone and change. And those are two things we desperately don't want to do. Why? Because inside our comfort zone is a warm and cozy place where we can convince ourselves that our sins aren't so serious, that we're only human anyway, and that a lot of people do worse stuff. Outside of our comfort zone, which Jesus invites us to walk into, is a kind of cold light a day place where we're asked to see others, see, uh, see ourselves, I beg your pardon, as God sees us. To examine ourselves in the mirror of scripture and godly experience and to admit our failings, seek his mercy and desire a change of heart. So repentance is always personal. It starts with us. It's also something that we haven't got, in a sense, forever to get round to. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree, where he requests, or it is requested, uh, that the tree, the fig tree that has not borne fruit, is given a final chance, a final season for the barren tree. With cultivation, it might come round. If not, then at least we tried and we then cut it down. He uses this as an analogy for repentance. Because in the same way, if we grow in complacency and don't respond to the reality of judgment, then we risk the same fate as the fruitless fig tree. Fig tree. Repentance is time-bound. Let me give you a kind of example of how we can get sucked into leaving it to tomorrow. Passports. Passports have a 10-year life. It's a whole 10 years before they expire. So when I took my passport out in 1994 or renewed it, I thought, well, it'll be a long time before I ever have to think about that again. And at each business trip or summer holiday, as they passed... And I glanced at the expiry date. It always seemed like ages before I would have to do anything. Then, in 2003, my wife Louise became extremely unwell, and I became completely preoccupied by supporting her. And a few months after she died, I arranged to take Thomas to the Athens Olympics for a bit of a break. And you can perhaps tell what's coming. I got to the airport, ready to travel, and found out that my passport had just expired. Well, thanks to the passport and office and office and British Airways, we did get away. But Jesus' point is that the fig tree, given a final season to bear fruit, has to respond and has to start now. And we, being given time by God's grace, is not being given an excuse to rest on our laurels, whatever our circumstances right now. So what should we do? Well, Jesus says it twice in this passage. We should repent or face the consequences. Whatever the state of your own Christian faith today, whether you're sceptical, as I was for more years than I would care to remember, or whether you're living in the Lord, none of us, escapes the call to self-examination that precedes repentance. What I mean by that 
is just look in the mirror. Do we see in ourselves when we do that the fruit of the Spirit or the woes of the world or, if you're like me, a bit of both? If we can see where we fall short, then we become capable of change, desiring of it. So when we look in that mirror, may we pray that the fruit of the Spirit is grown in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Repentance. Moving on. Relationship. Well, if the bit about repentance didn't take the Jewish listeners of the time out of their comfort zone, then his comments later on in the latter verses, 25 to 27, certainly would. As I said earlier, Jews were expecting the kingdom of God as their personal and national inheritance by adherence to law and custom. If not quite an entitlement, certainly a blessing that was theirs to lose. So when one of them pipes up and says, are only a few going to be saved? Jesus speaks about what salvation at the time of judgment means. And he describes it using the analogy of an entrance to a house. Now that house, in that analogy, has an owner who alone decides on who is to be admitted and a door at which those hoping, hoping to enter may knock. And Jesus describes that door, and he calls it narrow. And entry as requiring every effort. Not a comfortable thing to hear if you thought you had the keys by birthright of Jew, of being Jewish. Now, I've not often been in the position of being a gatekeeper for anything, but I was one, one night uh, Saturday night in 1974, I was, that's going back, I was 16, my brother John was 18 and he was about to leave home and join the army, the Coldstream Guards. And we had his 18th birthday and his leaving party all in one and it was all in our house in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Spirits were high in Newcastle at the time because... Um, Lindisfarne were top of the charts and Newcastle United had just got to the cup final. So we're all in a good mood. And it soon became obvious in those pre-Facebook days that friends had invited friends who had invited friends and that numbers at the party were getting badly out of control. I was put on the door, I don't know why, to stop any more gate crashes coming in. A gay crasher being uninvited and unwelcome. And I recall opening the door to a knock late on in the night, or might even have been early in the morning, a knock from four or five lads who said, you know, is this a party like? I didn't recognize any of them. Yeah, but, you know, who are you? Well, we're mates of Moza, you know, um, someone I'd never heard of. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't come in. How are we, man? We've brought lots of bottles, man. Um, indicating a container straining under the weight of bottles of Newcastle brown ale. The closest equivalent to a sacrificial offering that was on sale <laughs> at the time. 
Well, you still can't come in, I said. And as I moved to close this door, they took exception to my judgment. And they rushed the door and threw at least one of these bottles at me. And I managed to slam it just in time and dodge the bottle as well, which crashed on the wall behind me. Now, a narrower door that night might have been helpful. But, of course, the reason I wouldn't let in those Geordie revelers that night is that they had no relationship with me or my brother. We didn't know them. And we certainly didn't know that they were from our neighborhood. And they also didn't know, though, that uh, I had reinforcements and that my then girlfriend's brother, who was the goalkeeper for Blythe Spartans, was in the next room and would have sorted them out much more effectively than I uh, would have done. Anyway, my point is that does God see us that way? Or does God see those who seek salvation without a relationship as gatecrashers? People trying to get in without that relationship. And I think the answer from this passage has to be yes. Because if we come to him on the day of judgment as strangers, then we can't expect him to recognize and welcome us. Will we claim, as the gay crushers did, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets? Well, for God, that's not enough. Jesus makes the distinction between those who have been passive participants to those who have actively sought to build their relationship with him. The former is like us saying at the day of judgment, hang on a minute, we used to come to church sometimes and we never missed a summer fate. That's not a relationship that Jesus recognizes. It's a half-hearted appearance, he seems to be saying. No, getting through the narrow door requires more of us. It requires a response to grace that's deliberate, urgent, and demanding. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 9, and he uses the analogy of a runner training for a race. Just as Jesus used the word, uses the word meaning make every effort or strive, implying something really demanding, so Paul urges us to go into training, into strict training and toughen our bodies for the prize that God promises the faithful. So just as repentance requires self-examination, our relationship with the owner of the house demands that we train to pass through the narrow door in sticking to the faith, sticking to the task, in challenging ourselves to chain in line, change in line with his will, to grow our understanding of him and to train by serving others. If that sounds difficult, it's not meant to be comfortable No one who knows what's involved would ever describe the Christian journey as a comfort blanket. But it's not meant to be discouraging, but a call to action. We've covered the need for repentance, the test of relationship. And now we turn finally to our third point, the prospect of redistribution. The key verses are those two right at the end, 29 and 30. And Jesus has stark words. 
stark words for those who are the people of Israel by birth, but have not repented and have not grown in relationship with the Father. Things will be bad for them. They'll look through that narrow door and they'll see their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and the prophets of the kingdom, but they themselves will not be admitted. Their family right will mean nothing on that day. Get out of your comfort zone. He's shouting, because... There will be people from all over, north, south, east and west, who are admitted. Everywhere outside of and including Israel. This is a universal offer. And because in verse 30, those who are last will be first and the first will be last. So he's saying two related things. That the kingdom of God is a universal invitation open to everyone, regardless of culture, geography, what they've done, or who they are. None is excluded per se. And he also says, particularly to his Jewish audience, that there's no worldly pecking order that applies. No birthright, no background, no record of sacrifice, no adherence to the law, no status in society or synagogue. Nothing that gives preferential treatment. Except that all must repent and all must know the Father. We, I believe, can read our own situations into that. Because in a kingdom where repentance and relationship with the Father are all that count, a proud bishop will fall behind a repentant single mum on benefits. An Iraqi Christian who loves the Lord will overtake a president who loves only his country. And a homeless family will find God's shelter before the home owner. In these lines, drawn for the kingdom, there's no easy comfort zone that we can find or stay in merely through religious practice or complacent respectability. There's no record of church attendance. No pattern of family faith. No educational record. No condemnation of the sins of others. And no feeling of self-satisfaction. But that are three important things in the Christian faith because the comfort that we actually have is more real and more lasting than any of those things. It comes from three things that Jesus mentions. And I'll close by running through those for you. Our comfort comes from the extent of our repentance. So, Don't go past a mirror, either real or spiritual, this week, particularly this Lent, without pausing and looking into it and noting what you see and praying with thanks for the fruit that you see and with repentance for the sin. For that sin was wiped clean on the cross And his mercy extends to we who repent. Our comfort comes from that. Our comfort also comes from our relationship with our Father. Take your own door test. When you knock and he opens, 
Can we say, here I am, Father? The Father who sent his Son that we might be admitted. Or will we say, well, I'm not sure if you remember me, but I'm the one who used to... We can draw comfort from growing our relationship with Father, with our Father in repentant hearts. And finally, we get comfort from the hope that's expressed in the kingdom. Jesus, in this passage, doesn't give a great description of the kingdom of God, but he does say words and paint pictures which are important and inspirational to hold on to. He describes the kingdom as a tree that has grown from a single mustard seed of faith. Wherever we are on our journey, we can hold on to the idea of growth and what lies ahead. He describes it as a living, active yeast that has worked its whole way through the dough. We can be expectant that God's work will grow in us if we let him. He describes his house and that it has a narrow door. And that's a call to train and to work at growing our relationship with our Father in prayer and dependence. And he describes his kingdom as a place for all nations and all people, north, south, east and west. And a place of no favoritism. And he describes it as a feast and a celebration. Most importantly, he describes it as a place where God is. May we, in the spirit of Jesus, in his strength and at his prompting, grow, therefore, the repentant hearts and the solid godly relationships that we need, that we too may receive the blessings won for us on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.